Let, let's turn to the book of Zechariah, chapter 13. Very easy to find. If you go to Matthew chapter 1 and work your way back, you'll come to Zechariah chapter 13. It, it's really the um, second last book of the Old Testament. <coughs> Zechariah chapter 13. Zechariah chapter 13, and we're going to read, of course, from the uh, first verse, and we'll take the time uh, to read the whole of the chapter. Zechariah chapter 13. In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David, and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. And it shall come to pass that when any shall yet prophesy, then his father and his mother that begat him shall say unto him, Thou shalt not live. For thou speakest lies in the name of the Lord, and his father and his mother that begat him shall thrust him through when he prophesieth. And it shall come to pass in that day that the prophets shall be ashamed, every one of his vision, when he hath prophesied. Neither shall they wear a rough garment to deceive, but he shall say, I am no prophet, I am an husbandman. For man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. And against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined. And will try them as gold is tried. They shall call in my name. And I will hear them. I will say. It is my people. And they shall say. The Lord. Is my God. Amen. We trust and pray that God will stamp with his own approval and blessing. This reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now my text tonight is taken from Zechariah chapter 13 verse 7 and my subject this evening is the awakened sword. Now let me ask, what does verse 7 mean? And to whom does it refer to? I'm not going to bore you with the conjectures 
and the speculation of men. But I do have to tell you that there is a diversity of opinion as to what verse 7 means and who it refers to. Now, one of the great rules of biblical hermeneutics, that's the science of interpretation of the scriptures, is this. Does the Holy Spirit employ the words anywhere else in the Bible? Can we compare one scripture with another scripture? And the answer in relation to verse 7 is yes. That means, of course, when we apply that rule, we can have certainty in deciphering its meaning. Now, look with me at Matthew chapter 26 and the verse 31. The speaker is the Lord Jesus himself. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the night before his crucifixion. And it says, And when they had sung in him, remember they're in the garden, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Then said Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. And that's a clear reference to the latter part of Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 7. These words speak of Jesus Christ and his own experience of suffering upon the cross. Here's a text that speaks of Jesus Christ in his person and work, a text that speaks of the vicarious suffering of Christ and I put it to you tonight that they cannot be understood in any other way. The immediate context of chapter 13 is very helpful because it too is all about Christ. Look at verse 1, it says here, in that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. And that's a reference to the fountain of the precious blood of our Saviour. If you look again at, at verse 6, um, it's mentioned here, um, What are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. In other words, we see another reference to Christ and his suffering. You see, the Bible, young people, is really full of Christ. To use a big theological word, it's Christocentric. Uh, and don't worry about spelling that. I'm a bad speller myself. Um, just think of that it's full of Christ. That, that the Bible centers in Christ. That, that Christ is the key to the scriptures. And of course, isn't this the heart of the message of the true gospel? The, the death and suffering of Jesus Christ. And that's an important issue. And here's an important verse that teaches it. And a good hermeneutical rule when you're thinking about a text of scripture is this. What does it teach me about Christ? What can I learn about him in his person and in his work? And that's how I approached the 13th verse, or the 7th verse of chapter 13 of Zechariah. Listen to the words. 
Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. And I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. Now, there's four things here that I want to bring to your attention. Notice, first of all, the symbol that is mentioned. Awake, O sword. And we'll pause there. Now, I want you to think of a sword. It's a slumbering sword. It's in a state of slumber and rest. And there's a call to the sword. There's a summons for it to awake. And this call, of course, comes from the lips of Jehovah, the lips of the Lord of hosts himself. And this call is issued to this slumbering sword to awake and to smite. What is this sword? It's the sword of God's holy justice and vengeance. There's none like it. I want you to think of the sword of holy justice and vengeance in the hand of Jehovah. And it's mentioned here, saith the Lord of hosts. So it's clear in view who the speaker is. The Lord of hosts is mentioned 37 times in the book of Zechariah. It emphasizes the majesty and the grandeur and the power of the Lord. He is the Lord of all the celestial hosts of heaven. He's the Lord of every creature on the earth. Even the devils and the demons in hell are subject to the Lord's power and authority. Nobody, of course, can stand before his all-conquering mighty power. Remember King David's lovely message to us in Psalm 46, verses 7 and 11. Twice he says, the Lord of hosts is with us and does not give tremendous encouragement, wonderful peace of mind, a source of comfort for the people of God, the people who can say, the Lord of hosts is my God, that, that, that I'm among the people of the Lord. But of course, the opposite is true. Because if the Lord of hosts is against you, what a terrible prospect. What terrible dread should fill your soul. Remember Amos' call? Amos 4 and 12, prepare to meet thy God. And the context is, he is coming to meet you in judgment because of your sin. And this sword that I've mentioned, while it's the sword of holy justice and vengeance, it's a symbol of Jehovah's great awesome power. Uh, turn over there to the book of Romans, uh, Romans chapter 13, uh, and uh, look with me at the verse uh, 4, uh, because there's mention there of a sword. Romans chapter 13 and verse 4. It says, For he is the minister of God to thee for good, but if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. You see, the rulers of the land, the kings and queens, the magistrates, the judges, the lawmakers, 
are meant to be a terror to evil. They're given their position of power and authority by the Lord. And they're not meant to be a terror to those who do good works. But they're meant to be a terror to the terrorist. Oh, that we had that thought dominant in the heart of government today. Why? Because the kings and queens and the magistrates and the judges is one who bears the sword. And he can wield and use his power and authority to judge even by the edge of the sword if necessary. Here's this call. And it's to the slumbering sword. And the sword is summoned. And it's summoned by the Lord himself to awake. And it's the sword of justice. It's the sword of holy vengeance. There's the symbol that's mentioned. Keep that in mind. Now, notice something else in the text. I want you to think of the the sufferer that's mentioned. It says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts, smite the shepherd. Now we'll pause there. Here's Jehovah, the Lord of hosts, and he calls for this sword of holy justice and vengeance to be used against someone. Who is it? My shepherd. And against the man that is my fellow. Now, take in mind the Lord of the hosts. He has appointed the sword of holy justice and vengeance. He has appropriated and is going to use the sword of holy justice and vengeance. And he announces the sword and calls upon it to awake and to smite my shepherd and to smite the man that is my fellow. Now no doubt this command involves suffering and bloodshed and inflict terrible pain. But I want you to think of a couple of things as we work our way through. Think of the identity of the sufferer. My shepherd. I have no doubt that it's Christ that's in view. He is called in the Bible, young people, the good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. John chapter 10. Three times that title is used of Christ. And of course, Christ stands in unparalleled character in relation to all the other shepherds. He's called in Hebrews 13 and 20, that great shepherd of the sheep. In other words, he excelled in all that he did. He's called in 1 Peter 5, the chief shepherd, when he shall appear. And of course, he stands head and shoulders above the rest. The identity of the sufferer. My shepherd. But notice something else. Think of the humanity of the sufferer. He says, against the man that is my fellow. Isn't it interesting here that Jehovah speaks of Christ as the man? In other words, he's a true man. He's a real man. And Jehovah himself is guarding the real true humanity of Christ. And of course we believe in the doctrine of the incarnation. Great is the mystery of God in us. God was manifest in the flesh. We believe in the doctrine of the virgin birth. 
Jesus Christ is born of woman only. We believe in the doctrine of Christ's sinlessness. But we also believe in the doctrine of Christ's true humanity. Let me say tonight, if Jesus Christ was not a true man, you couldn't trust him. You couldn't have him sympathise with you. You couldn't know his care and his love. You couldn't have fellowship with him. C.H. Spurgeon said in this text, there's no hope for any sinner unless Jesus Christ is a true man. You see, you need a true real man to save you. You need a true real man to sympathise with you and to succour you. A man, remember, had broken the law of God. The first man, Adam. And therefore we need a man, a real true man, to fully satisfy and fulfil the law of God. And as far as the Lord of hosts is concerned, a man must come, a man must fulfil the law and fully satisfy um, uh, 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 its precepts and fulfil its penalty. A man must come to deal with sin. And the Lord Jesus is set forth in the Bible as the last Adam. And he rendered a full satisfaction to the law of God. He fulfilled his precepts. He paid his penalty in full. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 45. Tremendous statement. Where it, it declares that the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. In other words, Jesus Christ, he's the last Adam. He came to quicken and raise up dead sinners and set them free from the bondage of their sin. A true man, a man of real flesh and blood, a man without sin, a sinless man. Notice, of course, in the text, there's no charge against this shepherd. We could ask what crime has this real true man done there's no mention of sin there's no mention of wrongdoing in his part why was he being smitten we'll deal with that in a moment but I want you to just to grasp this the humanity of the sufferer notice something else very quickly think of the deity of the sufferer you see the text says against the man that is my fellow now underline that, because that's remarkable. The word fellow means a companion. One who was in a relationship with. And of course Jesus Christ is in eternal relationship with his Father from all eternity. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the same was with God in the beginning. And all things were made by him. And without him was not anything made. The word fellow also means an associate, one who's with. It also means a, a confidant, one who's in agreement and, and an unbroken fellowship. But the word fellow also means an equal, one who is my equal on the same level, one who has the same nature as me, one who is parallel to me. One who is Jehovah's equal. My fellow, you see, is not a creature. It's not someone inferior. It's not some sort of robotic, uh, super um, created being. 
but one who is equal. One who is the same as me in substance and power and glory. And we can say tonight categorically that Jesus Christ is God. And Jesus Christ is the God-man. And Jesus Christ is both God and man. When we think of the person of Christ, I think of the catechism question. 21, who is the redeemer of God's elect? And of course we know the answer. The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal son of God became man. And so was and continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. See, there are those within the church tonight who hate this doctrine of the God-man. Who want Jesus to be a good man and a great man, but not the God-man. And of course he has to be the God-man. And those who say, I hate that, I don't like this, I, I, I refuse to preach that, they display a lack of biblical knowledge. I, and they display a blatant, a blatant disregard for the word of God. Because the shepherd is not only a true man, but he's a true man who is God in the flesh, who is equal with God. That's why the Bible tells us, great is the mystery of godliness, God was manifest in the flesh. And the natures are not mixed or mingled. Two distinct natures in one body forever. A hundred percent man and a hundred percent man. A hundred percent God. If, you, if the God man is going to save, if he's going to hang in a tree, if he's going to be crucified, if he's going to atone for sin, he needs to be truly God and man. Because if Jesus Christ was only a man, his sufferings and death were of no value. It's his essential deity that gives value to his atonement and the work of the cross. It's the power of the blood of the God-man that gives us his infinite worth. The sufferer that's mentioned. Not only the symbol, the sword, but think of the sufferer. Think very quickly of the smiting that's mentioned. Notice the words here. Smite the shepherd. The sheep shall be scattered. See, that's what Jesus quoted. The Mount of Olives to his disciples. Matthew 26 and verse 31. That's how I know this is all about Christ. Jehovah cries for the sword of his holy justice. And vengeance to awake. Remember, it's been slumbering. It's been lingering. It's been waiting for the right moment. It's been listening for the call. And then when it was bid, awake, O sword, then it was told, "What well, this is what I want you to do, smite the shepherd. We were singing there, Jehovah bade his sword awake. O Christ, it woke against thee, thy blood the flaming blade must slake, thy heart its sheath must be, all for my sake my peace to make, now sleeps that sword for me. You see, here's the thought. The only one who can save men from their sin and reconcile them to God and bring them to heaven, he has been found. He's the God-man. And he's been sent in a mission of mercy. He came to seek in the sea of that which was lost. And we see him born of the woman. We see him live a sinless life on earth. Which of you convince of me of sin? He says, I do always those things that please the Father. 
We see him at Mount Calvary. And we see him there as the Father's equal. The co-eternal Son. And we see him smitten as the shepherd and the man that is my fellow. And the sword is raised against Christ. Remember what I said? The sword speaks of God's holy justice and vengeance against sin and against the breaking of his law. And when you think of the word smite, the language really goes to the heart of all the suffering that the Lord Jesus faced. And remember in that tremendous portion in Isaiah 53, we read there in the verse 10, (coughs) these words, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He had put him to grief. When thou shalt make a soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Smite the shepherd. One who is undeserving. One who is pure and holy. One who is sinless. Aren't you glad tonight that the shepherd was smitten? And not the sheep. You see over there in John chapter 18 verse 8. The Lord Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. The mob have arrived to arrest him. He asked them, whom seek ye? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. He said... I am he. He said again, I have told you I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. You see, in verse 8, that was a call to spare the sheep. Jesus was saying, don't touch the sheep. Yes, the disciples forsook him and fled. Yes, Peter followed afar off, but not one of them was smitten. Not one of them was lost. Not one of them went down to hell. Because the Lord Jesus was smitten and suffered in the stead and place of the sheep. And of course we know why. The Bible tells us he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. You know the first mention of the sword in the Bible? It's mentioned in Genesis 3. The Garden of Eden, the fall of Adam, and us in the loins of Adam into sin. And God put a flaming sword that barred the way to the tree of life. And the flaming sword was a warning, a deterrent against anyone daring to stretch out the hand and dare to take and partake of the tree of life. And of course, the flaming sword is a picture of the sinner separated from God. And here's the same sword. It's a flaming sword of justice, holy justice, divine vengeance against sin and law-breaking. And this is the last mention in the Old Testament. And it's to do with the smiting of the shepherd. The flaming sword of God's wrath was plunged into the body of Christ. And on the tree as a once and for all sacrifice for sin, he procured eternal redemption for all who will trust him depend upon him for salvation he extinguished the flaming sword of God's wrath and paradise glory to God has been reopened paradise has been regained the barrier has been removed the way now is opened whereby we can come to the Lord and the proof is as we've read already to do with Christ 
In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. Notice one final thing. Not only the symbol that's mentioned, the sword, I've told you what it is, it's the sword of holy wrath, divine justice. Not only the sufferer that's mentioned, not only the smiting that's mentioned, but think of the success that's mentioned. Notice the last words. And I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. Now that's lovely. There's a note of victory and triumph. The little ones, I believe, is a term of endearment. God speaking in a fond, loving way. Little ones are those in the eyes of the Lord who are in need of much care and help. They are helpless and powerless to look after themselves. He's speaking here of caring, I believe, for the sheep. And in light of the sword that's awoke now and smiting the shepherd and the shepherd suffering in the stead of the sheep, what does God say I'll do? I will turn my hand upon the little ones. I'll save the little ones. I'll succor the little ones. I'll supply their need. You see, God's wrath has been satisfied. The law of God has been fulfilled and silenced. Justice has been abated. It's been turned aside forever. And here's the triumphant note of God's gospel. The hand that smites Christ is the hand that can save even the children. And isn't that what we want to see and long for to happen? The hand of God's mercy to be upon us. The hand of power reaching out. A hand that saves. A hand that's open and welcoming. The little ones, of course, is a picture of weakness and helplessness. Couldn't do nothing for themselves. Isn't that a picture of every sinner? God, as we saw this morning, must take the initiative. Come to where we are and put his hand upon us. And I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. There's the success that's mentioned. If God has been satisfied, then the gospel will be successful. I leave that thought with you tonight. And I trust and pray that you will cry out that God will remember the little ones here. And that God will raise them up. And that God will save them and succor them and supply their need. And make them to be good and faithful servants in the work that he has called them to. May the Lord take these few thoughts and bless them to us this evening.